0: and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." This is the word of the Lord. There's a story I've heard uh, from multiple sources about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I mentioned him about a month ago in a story about his wrestling to kind of uh, understand what his calling was in the light of a nation, uh, Germany, that was being engulfed in flames of World War II. Well, this story is when he was running an illegal seminary, training pastors in the way of Jesus as opposed to the official state church of Nazi Germany at that time. A friend of his came to him and told him it was time to shut it down. Gestapo had heard about these theological schools that were in defiance of the Aryan paragraph, which mandated exclusion of all theological candidates within Germany who had any Jewish blood in them. And so this friend showed up and said, "It is too dangerous for you to continue. You've got to stop." And Bonhoeffer was quiet. So he invited his friend in for dinner, gave him quarter for the night, and the next morning he suggested that they' go for a small ride in a boat where they could talk privately. There was a lake nearby the property where the seminary was located, and they got in, they rode in halfway across the lake, and then on the other side, just through the early morning mist, you could dimly see that there was a training camp for Hitler youth on the other side. It's part of the vast Nazi propaganda machine uh, aimed at instilling in this ideology in young people of blood and soil. Bonhoeffer said to his friend, I can't stop. And if you want to know why I can't stop, and he pointed to the seminary, he said, because this needs to be stronger than that. As a pastor, I've been very interested in this question of how does transformation take place? How does lasting chance, how does does being shaped in the likeness of Jesus take place in a way that's stronger than whatever ideological, political, or cultural regime we find ourselves in? And I think this is a really important question because formation is simply a fact of human existence. We are all being shaped all the time by all kinds of things. And the question for us is not, are you being discipled? The question is, what are you being discipled? Or who are you being discipled by? What is shaping you? Jesus wasn't concerned just that his disciples were going to tell people what happened in the cross in the resurrection, Jesus was concerned that his disciples would teach others his way. A grounding text that Izzy read just a minute ago from Matthew chapter 28 takes place on the morning of the resurrection. It was the very last thing that Jesus says in Matthew's gospel. And this morning is going to kind of come as a little bit of a one-off, a stand in between from where we've been going through this on-again, off-again series on the Gospel of Mark and a vision series that we saw a video for that we're going to be launching next week. And I want to talk this morning just generally about how formation happens. Sometimes as you're reading the Bible, a funny thing's going to happen. In the midst of everything that's very familiar about it, something just sometimes is going to hit you in a way that was always there, you just couldn't see it before. Uh, For me, this happened as we were, as actually I was speaking the words that Izzy just read. I have been saying them uh, every time I baptize a child or an adult as part of the liturgy for 17 years. But as I was saying them this Easter, uh, maybe it was the reality of baptizing three young men, Uh, maybe it was the reality that one of them was my son. There was a different resonance in the words that hit me. It's widely regarded as the great commission of the church. Go into all the world. This call, that's what the baptizing all nations part is. Go out and make disciples. So Jesus doesn't tell this believing and doubting mass that gathered on that first Easter morning. He doesn't say to them, hey, go out and make a church. He says, go and make disciples disciples and here's why that matters for us if you build a church you might get around to making disciples if you make disciples you're always going to have a church Here's the difference. In a culture like ours that has historically been shaped by Christian narratives regarding the nature and the destiny of the human person, and that's true whether you are here as somebody who believes or whether you are here as somebody who doubts. If you doubt, it's a perception of the Christian God that you doubt, right? I mean, you're not out there wondering whether it's Thor or Jesus that you should be following, no matter how good Chris Hemsworth looks without his shirt on. For those of you who you know, know that I do visuals, you're wondering, well, why didn't you do a visual of that? <laughs> My point is that Christianity has been so tied to our culture that church and church life, for the longest time, was simply taken granted as part of what we do, part of the institutional fabric that supports our common life together. Christianity just sort of named reality, and most people, for the most part, kind of believe the same sort of things. In a world like that, if you go to church and you go and make a church... You're building something that basically names what everybody already thinks anyway, and it doesn't question reality from the ground up. And maybe you're gonna get around at some point to shaping disciples, but if you go and make disciples, you will always have a church because it is in the nature of disciples to gather so that they will be with Jesus, be shaped in his likeness, and then carry that likeness out into the world. And the thing that struck me during that baptism is that Jesus says, make disciples, and the two things that he links to that are are baptizing in the name of the triune God. But the second is this, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. He doesn't say teach them to know everything I've commanded you. It's teach them to obey. Teach them how to do it. In other words, it's not a matter of information transfer. It's a matter of ongoing, intentional formation. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' manifesto for what this life in the kingdom looks like, he begins with these words. He says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to talk about the substance of what that teaching is. It's, it's more than not killing other people. It's becoming the kind of person who does not harbor anger in their heart. It's more than about not shagging somebody that you're not married to. It's becoming the kind of person who instinctively and habitually has learned not to objectify others for sexual gratification. That's why I didn't put the picture of Chris Hemsworth up here. It's more than not lying under oath. It's becoming the kind of person whose who's life is so marked with integrity that no one will think of challenging your word. If you speak, they know that you're telling the truth. So how's that going for Everybody. Well, then Jesus circles back at the very end of the sermon with this haunting illustration. The last thing he says, kind of a, just drops the mic and walks out after he says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Really Prescient words to read as we think about the devastation that has gone on uh, in South Carolina and Florida. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash, sermon over, exit stage left. My point is that Jesus' book ends his Sermon on the Mount with a call to put these words of his into practice because Jesus assumes that living the life that he has called his disciples to live takes practice. You don't just wake up one morning free from the gravitational pull of your own internal narratives or your self-destructive habits or the relational networks that you're in and live a life that is in step with the kingdom You have to learn how to live the life that Jesus is describing. You have to learn how to desire it above everything else. Paul talks about this, about not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so discipleship to Jesus, another way of saying it, is is exchanging the current trajectory, the current loves and desires that pull your heart and mind in a certain direction in exchange for the kingdom that has come in Jesus. And in order for that to take hold of us, We've got to have a very clear vision of our lives, of what it's going to look like in the kingdom, and and that it actually will be better if we submit ourselves to the Spirit's work of transformation. I'm going to risk an analogy from my own marriage. Jill? Here we go. Back when I was in college, uh, I saw something that changed my life. That thing was Phil Keggy in concert. For those of you who don't know, who that is Phil Keggy was a guitarist. He was a vocalist in the 70s progressive rock trio Glass Harp. They were a Cleveland band. They were in the school of Cream and Jimi Hendrix experience. Um, this is what he. This is just him rocking out back in the total 70s glory. Actually, for the total 70s glory, let's go to the next slide. It is by far, yes. Look at that rainbows and. Oh, it was a simpler time, I think. (laughs) Yes, I lived two years in the 70s. You know much more than I do. I went to the concert because there was this apocryphal story that was kind of floating around where somebody asked Jimi Hendrix what it was like to be the best guitar player in the world. And he said, I don't know, ask Phil Keggy. And I was like, whoa, that story is rad. I'm in. Problem is, is that Glass Harp recorded their first record two weeks after Hendrix's untimely death, so there's no way that that story is true, but after seeing Phil Keggy play, I could see how it got started. I mean, that guy did stuff with an acoustic and electric guitar that I have never seen anyone do. I had just started playing guitar about three months earlier, and I wanted to get better, and I mean, I went to this, this concert and my mind was blown and I thought, I want to do that. And so I threw all of my spare time into playing guitar. I played three to four hours a day, every single day, ran scales until my fingers bled. I studied chord structures, I studied pentatonics, I listened to all the greats across genres from B.B. King to Andre Segovia to Robert Cray, uh, Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix, Buddy Guy, I had this vision of life as a guitar player. And I intended to step into that vision and I used every single means at my disposal to make it happen. And a couple years into this journey, I got into the spot where I was pretty good. I was played in a few shows, I was in a band. There are no CDs in existence of that band. You cannot find them, don't try. (laughs) But it was around this time also that I met Jill. And I remember we were working on summer staff at a camp and conference center outside of Yosemite and you know I'd show off a little you know I'd play a little bit of Hendrix here on my acoustic and be like, "Oh, hey, I didn't know you were there." <laughs> I'd play some Phil Keggy on my acoustic cuz you know sensitive guys play acoustic guitar, right? And she was dating somebody else at the time and I, one day I just was happened to play my guitar near where she just happened to be working. I mean, I didn't plan that or anything she walked by and she's like, oh, you play the guitar. And I was like, yeah, a little. And she paused, looked at me and said, my boyfriend plays guitar all the time, instead of talking to me, I hate it. I was like, yeah, those guys are the worst. Not long after that, I sold my Guild Bluesbird and my Marshall stack so I could put a ring on her finger. Best decision ever. Now the reason Jill hates that story is it's just like don't make it sound like I am the reason you stopped playing guitar. No, and that is not true at all. It's just that when I met her. A different vision of a preferred future captured my heart and my attention. Playing guitars for hours on end when I could be hanging out with her seemed like the very definition of madness. So I traded the most expensive thing that I had for the the one thing that I really wanted. And here's the thing. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like that. It's like a man who finds a treasure in a field and sells everything he has to buy that field. He says the kingdom of God is a vision of it. It compels our eyes toward it. It compels our hearts toward it. It is the thing that our hearts were made for. But the thing is that vision alone does not produce transformation. You have to step into that vision. Jesus calls his disciples to follow, to put themselves bodily into it. It takes desire plus a will to act on that desire. It takes leaning into the life of Jesus. John Mark Homer, who pastors a church up in Portland, or used to pastor a church up in Portland, he has this little phrase that I love. He writes, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And so when we talk about spiritual practices, which we talk about a lot, and there is a reason for that, we are simply talking about taking on the things that we see in the life of Jesus that allow us to become people who live at home in the kingdom of God. We're talking about taking on a lifestyle that changes us over time. And this has to do with what we think in our minds, for sure, but it has a lot to do with what we do with our bodies, there's a great uh, book that was written a few years back called uh, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, and he summarizes recent work done in neuroscience and makes the claim that upwards of 43% of our daily activity takes place beneath the level of conscious thought. Think about that. 43% of what you do on a daily basis, you're not thinking about it. You're, you're on autopilot. Do you remember what it was like when you're first learning how to drive a car? Like cognizant of hands at 10 and 2. Look left, look right, look left again when you're, when you're pulling out. Except for when you move overseas to Ireland and you look left, right, left, and you almost die as a result of it. It's a whole other story for another time. But, you know, you do all these things, you're thinking about it, you're focused on it. And now, if you've been driven, driving a car for some time, you just you barely think about it at all. You just get in and go. Or when you move to a new city and you spend all this time, you know, on, on Google Maps and you're like, I don't know where to go at all. Uh, just take me where I need to go. You're, you're concentrating. You're focused on that. You, you look at the landmarks. You look at all that stuff. And then after a couple of, of weeks, a couple of months, driving home from work, you're just like, you don't even remember getting into your car and going home. You just are there and you're just like, I did not think about anything on my drive. We're shaped as much, if not more, by the habits that we do than the things we actually think about. The things that we do on a regular basis, they actually do something to us. They become part of us. They, they shape us in all kinds of ways that we're not always consciously aware of. They get into the core of our being and they can actually change the way that you, you love and you long for things. They can shape you in good ways, and they can shape you in ways that sometimes you know aren't good for you. The reality is that what you love, to a remarkable extent, is shaped by your habits. They have more of an effect on your life, maybe, than what you even believe to be true in your head. If you think about it, this is why people who struggle with porn, or with screen addiction, or with shopping, or with substance abuse, the reason for that is that as you do these repeated actions, the neural pathways in your brain, they get wider, they get more grooved as you have these repeated actions. I, I did trail maintenance in the Sierras in that same summer that I met Jill, and. Uh, it's, 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 to give you another analogy of that, as you are first cutting a trail with a machete or with whatever tools you've got uh, on a mountain, it is hard, it is slow going, but every subsequent time you walk on that trail and you get a little bit farther, the trail behind you gets a little bit more worn, it gets a little bit wider. Over a couple of weeks, there is an identifiable path in there because of the repeated action. Same thing happens with the neural pathways in our brain, with the kind of habits we have, with the kind of practices we engage in. Over time, they can actually change the way you think about things. They can change the way that you, you love things. They can orient your desires in a direction you would have never thought about going before. And that shapes you into a different kind of person. There are some thought leaders in the area of spiritual formation, Uh, Dallas Willard, James Brian Smith, more recently John Mark Comer, they describe the way that the unintentional uh, practices of our lives, the way that our culture just shapes us if we are not aware of it, just operating beneath the surface, is a paradigm of unintentional spiritual formation. And what they mean by that is that we're being shaped all the time by the stories that we internalize, that's the top part of the triangle there. And these can be cultural narratives, such as the idea that sex is just playtime for adults, right? It's just bodies enjoying other bodies. There's no inherent meaning, so don't deny, don't repress, enjoy. Or these can be family scripts that are handed down to us. I have a friend who remembers playing Trivial Pursuit as a kid, about six or seven years old. After he got a few questions wrong, his dad said, Wow, you sure are stupid. And that stuck with them for a long time. The stories that we internalize about ourselves, about the world, beliefs about racial hierarchy, white supremacy, Beliefs about rigid gender roles or beliefs that this radical delinking of gender from biology, these are all have a way of coloring the way that we think about the world. And if we don't unlearn them, the lies that we internalize become the lies that we live out of our bodies. But we're also shaped by the bodily habits that we pick up. Staying up too late, waking up too early, spending too much money, on ourselves, obsessing over what we eat, not thinking at all about what it is that we eat. And we're also shaped by the relationships we form. We, we become like the, the people that we spend time with and the way that they see the world becomes over time the way that we see the world. And all of this takes place and is mediated by the environment in which we live, the culture that we are a part of. And it all takes place through the circumstances of our life and over time. The things above, the, the, the habits we pick up, the stories we internalize, the relationships we form, these are things over which we can exercise some bit of control, but none of us can control the circumstances of our lives. None of us can control the flow of time. It just happens. Now, all these things, is not to say that they're, they're necessarily bad things. They can be good things. They can be neutral things. The question for us as followers of Jesus is, do they move us closer to or further from the kingdom of God? Do they move us closer to the life that he has said is available to us in the Father's grace, or do they move us farther away from that? I'll give you one quick example of it. Jay Walker Smith, who was the president of a marketing firm, told CBS News in the 1970s that the average American was exposed to approximately 500 advertisements per day. Well, it's 2022. Digital marketing experts now claim that between print ads, between brand labels, between digital ads from Meta and Google, that number is as high as 10,000 ads per day. That's 10,000 seductions promising to make you newer, better, firmer, sexier, whatever it is. The writer Sky Jatani sums it up with this picture right here. The average Christian in America spends two hours a month at church, but is shaped by 150,000 ads per month. If you are just cruising through life, the scale of formation is tilted. Neural pathways get shaped with these repeated images, repeated thoughts, repeated actions. So if there are all these unintentional forces at play pulling us into their gravity, then to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus requires an intentional strategy of formation, a kind of counter-formation to all the things that we are immersed in every day. And this formation takes place in our homes, and it has to be stronger than the formation that takes place outside. Because if Sunday morning is all that you got, it's a losing battle. But the good news is, God created our brains to have a remarkable degree of what neuroscientists call plasticity. To go back to the analogy of a trail, if you stop using a trail, what'll happen to it? The forest is gonna claim it back. And it's not gonna take that long. And you can actually carve out new neural pathways with new practices. You can actually, your brains are designed to heal. So what does intentional formation look like then? Well, instead of media narratives or family scripts that are handed down, it's scripture as the true story of God's grace in Jesus. You can add to that teaching on scripture, because sometimes we need a little bit of help getting into this strange world of the Bible. Instead of simply being guided by the habits that we fall into, we have, you know, things like intentional practices. Instead of those habits of, you know, things like intentionally uh, or obsessively scrolling over the news or the stock market or social media or whatever. We have, we have practices like hospitality, like prayer, like, like fasting that root us in the way of Jesus. And instead of relationships which can be good and, and beautiful and life-giving, we also have Christ-centered community, people who are also practicing the way of Jesus and asking hard questions about what following Jesus looks like in their lives. All of this takes place under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is not something that we are primarily responsible for, but something that we get to actively participate in. And that's important because taking on a lifestyle of discipleship to Jesus, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes consistency. It happens all throughout the ups and downs of life, whatever comes at us. And I'm saying that all this because the goal is not to hit the eject button on modern life. Or like move into a a commune and herd some goats. As beautiful as that would be. Baby goats are adorable. (laughs) But it's the invitation for us in an urban setting. Is to spend some time intentionally cultivating habits. As a kind of counterbalance to all of the unintentional ways we are being shaped all the time. And we do that so that we can be a signpost of the kingdom in this place, in the here and now. And this takes place in little things. It looks like instead of sleeping next to your phone most nights, you adopt the simple practice of putting your phone to bed before you do. It looks like instead of grabbing it first thing to check all your notifications or your emails or, or, or what's going on in the morning news, you start off your morning with a simple prayer, Jesus, I surrender the outcomes of this day to you. Allow me to be present in this space. Allow me to greet the people that you place in my path and to be for them like you are for them. Allow me to see this work that I do as contributing to your flourishing in the world. It looks like reading a scripture passage and then allowing that to just kind of stay with you all day long Shaping your orientation in the world. How, what are you saying to me in this, Jesus? Who are you calling me to be in this time, in this space? What is your invitation for me today? Over time, how do these practices shape you to be a witness to the kingdom? To see what God is about for the whole world. To provide hope for the world. That, as Susie described, is really on edge. Well, over the last... Uh, few weeks we've been in the Gospel of Mark. Over the next seven weeks we're going to take a look at the kinds of practices and postures that God is calling us to in this place in this time so that we can be a community shaped by the kingdom to be good news for this community in which we live. Last year we unveiled a mission statement, uh, practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things, and the question we had to ask ourselves as we were going through that is, well, how do we live into and lift up the story of what God's renewal looks like in the here and now, and how can we be part of that? And there's a lot that can be said about what practicing the way of Jesus for renewal looks like, but we believe that it's going to be a process of becoming a community that is marked by things like grace, rest, engagement, contribution, and reconciliation. And so we are inviting everyone who calls All Souls Home to join in. If you are not in a community group, this is a great time to get in one. If you are, have been coming here for a little while and you don't, you're not sure, you're just kind of still on the edges, not sure if this is your church home, this would be a great way to kick the tires to find out what it is that we really care about as a church community. We published a community guide. There are a few samples of it about. This is, it's a very, very condensed and uh, very, very truncated version of that, just to give you a sample of like what it would look like. But it's an interactive process of uh, discovering, of dialoguing, of engaging in storytelling about how God has shaped you. And it's meant to be interactive. There are all kinds of activities, there are all kinds of questions for reflections, there are personal inventories for those of you who like, you know, to have a little bit more precision and all that. But it's this guided process, just kind of looking through your life, seeing how God has shaped you through events, through people, through circumstances, with all with the point of what it would look like to take on some intentional practices as a community to become the kind of people who are at home in the kingdom of God. I'm really excited to see what God is going to do with all the prayer, with all the thoughts, with all the wrestling that kind of went into these words. It was a team effort by our staff, by our session, by people outside of our staff. But I'm far more invested in how God is going to shape this community for the future. As we continue to live into the story that he is telling, as we partner with him in bringing hope and renewal to the broken places of this world, until that day that the future is made present. So with that, let us pray. Almighty God, Lord of all creation, we ask that as we come to these practices, as you send us from this place, We would go in the power of your spirit, that you would arrest our hearts, that you would transform our vision to see what life in your kingdom is about. We ask this so that we would not simply be hearers of your word, but those who put it into practice. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our rabbi, our lord, amen.